Brother Matt Hack made his way to Kearney and got me a new earpiece so it's not making all the noises this morning. So you can thank him for being willing to do that. Would you please take your copy of the Word of God and let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 to 10. Matthew 18, 7 to 10. I've called this promoting sin is a sin. We're going to be talking about stumbling blocks, among other things. Matthew 18, 7 to 10. I want to set the stage for that this way. Sin is disobedience to God's standard. Whether our sin is intentional or unintentional, it is sin. And I'm sure everyone here this morning already knows that. And uh, I try to avoid both intentional and unintentional sin. We also know, don't we, that God is opposed to sin. Although I run into, I run into people today, unbelievably, that uh, are not opposed to sin. They think it's okay. And some that claim to be Christians. But it isn't okay uh, to oppose God is sin. And he does not want to see sin in our lives. And we know that's difficult because we still have the flesh. And our flesh is sinful And in our sinful flesh, uh, we often do things we wish we hadn't have done, but we do them. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 97.10, these words, Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who watches over our souls, the souls of his godly ones. He saves them from the hand of the wicked. There we have a command that we're to hate evil. We should not be uh, friends with it. We should not allow it in our lives. We shouldn't court it in any way. We're to hate evil but not hate people. The world doesn't understand how we can say hate the sin and love the sinner. They think it's just all hatred, but it's not. We don't care what they think because they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, We are to hate evil but not hate people, and we, we don't hate people. Jesus taught in Luke 6, 27 and 28 these words, But I say to you, uh, I'm sorry, but I say to you who hear, in other words, his words, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who are abusive to you. One way to love others is to not be a stumbling block to them. In other words, don't promote sin in their lives like what was happening with this young man in the area of sexuality. One loving others means I'm not going to stand in the way of their, their gaining ground with Jesus Christ. We don't promote sin in another person's life. That's a stumbling block. Instead, we encourage them to be righteous, and we do that by the way we live and by what we say. Jesus has some very important things to say about causing others and allowing ourselves to sin. Stumbling blocks are about that. Jesus calls those occasions stumbling blocks. So if you have your text open to Matthew 18, I'm going to look at verses 7 through 10. Uh, Jesus has been talking. He just said uh, it'd be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, he's going to use little ones again, and uh, probably in the same way, little ones, somebody repents or is on the road to repenting. In verse 7, it says this, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom stumbling blocks come. I want you to see how Jesus started with an overall uh, reference to the world. The cosmos is the word in the Greek text. It's, It's the whole world. And in that same verse, then he brings that down in terms of responsibility to the individual. 
the man, the woman. In verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Now we have two references to eternal life in hell. The end of verse 8 and the end here of verse 9, they have a little bit different thing to say. We'll get to that when we get through the text. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we're not going to do verse 11 because that was not in the earliest manuscripts of the book of Matthew. You can actually find that taught in Luke 19.10. But when we exegete a book, we want to listen to what the author has to say. Somebody added that, probably a scribe somewhere, to make it go along with Luke. It wasn't a part of Matthew's argument. It wasn't a part of what he was trying to say. Uh, so we, we won't try to deal with that. And if you have a good study Bible, it tells you that in the margin that it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, meaning Matthew didn't write it, so we don't want to study it here. We'll study it in Luke. All right, having read the text, our first point, point number one, verse seven, is this, if you're following along and taking notes in your bulletin, point number one, though stumbling blocks are inevitable, great suffering awaits those who trip others up in regard to their faith. Though stumbling blocks are inevitable, Great suffering awaits those who trip others up in regard to their faith. That's a warning for us not to be stumbling blocks. And there's two things going on in this passage. This can be standing in the way of somebody who may be looking for Christ or may be considering Christ, maybe wants to have faith in Christ, and also for ourselves and what we do with sin. Because what we do with sin is going to determine whether we really are a member of Christ's family or not. Those who don't know Jesus don't care about their sin. Those who do know Jesus do care about their sin. So in verse 7, Jesus pronounces woe on the world. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the world in a minute here. Because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. In this world where there is sin and it's rampant and it's a part of every person who is conceived in their mother's womb, uh, we, that's imputed sin at that point, and then we're all enemies of God, Romans 5, 10, and 11, there's going to be stumbling blocks in a society like ours. There's going to be people that trip others up for the faith in a, in a place where people are shot through with sin. He uses the word woe again, but woe to that man through whom stumbling blocks come. In other words, the world and its sinfulness is full of sin. It's full of people opposed to God. So there's going to be stumbling blocks. And then Jesus narrows it down and says, but woe to that man, to that woman, to that young person, who causes other people to stumble in their, in their walk or their reach for Jesus Christ. So I want to look at verse 7 a little bit in detail here. First of all, Jesus addresses these comments to the world. The word in the Greek is cosmos. It's, uh, there are different words in Greek for the word world. This one is one that means that it's inclusive of both the saved and the unsaved. He's just talking about the world overall. So all of it. And we find there that anyone is capable of causing others to be tripped up in their faith. That's a stumbling block. Stumbling blocks are inevitable, the Lord says. They will come because we all live in a sinful and fallen world. We Christians still have the sin nature in us working through the flesh. 
There are people that deny they, they sin ever, and they're liars. Uh, everybody in the flesh sins, unless you're, I guess you could get away with it if you're in a coma for three or four weeks, and you'd be sinless for three or four weeks, you know, in your coma. But other than that, all of us sin. We're all sinners, and we all have that sin nature. And we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ says, you can give up this body with the sin nature, and you can take on new flesh, and I'll give you that new flesh, and the sin nature will not be a part of us anymore. And it's something that we all look forward to. Unbelievers, however, have the sin nature. Now, in Paul's terminology, that means that as believers, our spirit has come alive. It's been given new life. Ephesians 2.1 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We trust Christ as Savior. We become alive in Christ. What that means is that spiritually, every person that you know, or every person in the world who does not know Jesus Christ, does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, every single one of them has a dead spirit an Ephesians 2, 1 spirit, and they are not making good choices. They're not making a choice for God. Some of them are moral people. Some of them uh, do a lot of philanthropy and, and take care of other people, but they don't know God. So unbelievers have a sin nature, but they don't have new nature in them by which to live. We do. So what's our excuse, right? Though uh, translated as inevitable here in this verse, that it's inevitable that it comes, uh, the Greek word here carries a definition that carries with it the idea of a necessity, of a necessity. I want to read it with that in mind. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is of a necessary nature that stumbling blocks come. Necessary why? Because there's sin in the world. Because there's sin in us. That's why. And the word carries the word of, of necessity. The definition of this word of course, from the Greek is necessity or constraint as inherent in the nature of things. And in the nature of sin, it is inherent that there will be stumbling. It is pressure of any kind. It can also mean compulsion by forcible means. And that's the one I want to stick to because compulsion by forcible means, this, this is what we're talking about. Somebody becomes a stumbling block in your life or you become a stumbling block in somebody else's life who is trying to reach Christ. And what's happening is that you are, you are compelling them and in a way forcing them by setting up a stumbling block in their life to keep them from getting to Christ. I like the way this is used, this word, and just for illustration purposes in terms of what the word itself means, what it conveys, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Corinthian church uh, had uh, more than their share of problems and the Apostle Paul is trying to straighten out a rather wayward group. In 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul's been talking about you're not getting along in church, you're fighting in church, you're walking over each other with your gifts, on and on and on. And then he says in verse 19, for there must also be factions or divisions among you. Why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, problems in the church are built into the church, built into the fabric it's built into uh, the whole cause of this world, which is, is uh, right now sin, and the God of that world is, is Satan right now. And so there's sin everywhere. And in the church, God allows factions to come. In fact, what he says in our word from our text, inevitable, is the same word here for there must be. There must be. What he is saying to us is that this will happen in the church. There has to be because God every once in a while clears out the church to find out those who are genuine and those who are disingenuous 
and those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. And you can see very clearly where they are when trouble comes into the church, when factions enter into the church. And the Lord says this is inevitable in the sense that it must be. It's built into the fabric. So it's a good illustration of what the word means back here in our text in, in Matthew chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 7. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. They are there. They're not going away until the Lord comes to get us. For us, uh, they're going to be around. And it's a compulsory, compulsory force. Then I want to say something about the word stumbling blocks. What is Jesus meaning? A stumbling block can be anything that you set in the path of another person that causes them a disruption in their life with Christ. So the young man on the video tonight, he's trying to be moral with his girlfriend, but everybody else is being immoral, even some people in the church. And so he says, it's really hard. It's hard for me. I want to do the right thing, but there's all these things happening. Well, who put those things in his roadblock as a roadblock? Well, he did, and others have. Stumbling blocks has the meaning of being a device for catching something alive. It's a trap. This is an action or circumstance that leads one to a contrary to a proper course of action. So it's something that leads somebody away from what they should be doing and something that is contrary to what they should be doing and it leads them in the wrong direction. Um, it can be an action of a set of beliefs that are wrong, temptations to sin like this young man was talking about, or enticements to apostasy. It can be anything that makes somebody not make it where they're supposed to go with Jesus Christ. And we can do that to ourselves as Christians, and we can do it to others who are non-Christians. In spiritual things, then, which is what we're concerned about, it is setting a temptation in the path of a person as they travel along life so that he or she will fall away from that path of God and end up on a crooked road or end up being trapped uh, by the enemy in his traps. Now that's a, that's a long definition. So I'm going to read it again. In spiritual things, it is setting a temptation in the path a person travels so that he or she will fall away from the path of God and end up on a crooked road. You know, there are people that are purposely trying to keep Christians from following Jesus, right? Uh, I remember uh, years ago a dad that purposely decided he would do things with his boy on Sunday morning to keep his wife from taking the kid to church. And so he always had something planned, whether it was a recreation activity or something else, not going to let my son go to church. I'm going to stand in the way of that. Now, though he, he did that and though he tried that, that young man came to Christ, listened to Christian radio in his garage one day years later, and then led his dad to Christ. Wonderful story. Doesn't always turn out that nice. But there was a dad that was purposely trying to keep his son away from God, and God found him anyway. Woe to the person who does those kinds of things. Jesus pronounces woe to those through whom stumbling blocks come to others. Now let's talk about the word woe. And uh, we are going to run into that in chapter 23 where there are seven woes that are pronounced against the Pharisees. Here, woe, and we'll take Dr. Blomberg's definition. It says this, a woe is an exclamation of how great one will suffer. So Jesus interjects, woe, and then you better listen. Woe what? Well, what's going to come here? What, what's happening? Woe if you're a stumbling block. And so he interjects that into it, and he wants you to know, you do this, you're going to suffer greatly. It's a pronouncement of impending doom on a person that follows this path, an impending destruction. 
This will be a result of God's judgment on those who cause others to stumble. And here we're talking about in spiritual ways. That's our, that's our topic this morning, stumbling in spiritual ways. Woe to the person who causes that. That would be like when a person encourages you to violate the word of God instead of obeying it. That would be like a person encouraging you not to listen to a certain part of the word of God or a verse in the word of God or a command in the word of God instead of adhering to it. You're a stumbling block if you do that. If you take something in the Bible you don't like and you uh, impose it on yourself and others as not necessary, as I don't have to do that, that'll be handled even in more depth in, in chapter 23. But then I am a stumbling block. And I, that's a sin, and I will pay for it. Woe to me. It is when they tell you God doesn't care about what you do. God doesn't care about how you think, how you act, how you walk. You can do anything you want to do. We all get to go to heaven. That's what the world teaches. It's when you keep your kids from Sunday school and church because in your mind they're not necessary and because you have no use for God yourself. So everyone who does that is a stumbling block. Basically, it is when you trip someone up in an effort to stop their forward progress with God. There is an inevitability excuse me, that these things will happen and the accountability that God will bring the one who does this to judgment. And that's what Jesus is saying to the people this morning about uh, this issue. Both the entire world system and individuals, as pointed out in verse 7, in the system have woe pronounced against them. The world is, is obviously guilty of this as a whole, and multitudes of individuals are guilty of this as a whole. And that is putting stumbling blocks in the path of another when it comes to their relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is thinking we will hear the woe, take the warning, and not cause people to stumble. That's what he's trying to tell us. Now, the second part, uh, verses 8 and 9, point number 2, we are to eradicate anything in our lives that causes us to stumble because the penalty is eternal. Now, this is where it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit dicey, shall we say. Uh, a Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. The Bible's clear about that. When you trust Christ, he puts you in the Father's hand. It says no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one means no one. Not God, not your friend, not your enemy, not the, not the devil. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But we still, as Christians, can be stumbling blocks. We can still be guilty of this. And we can be a stumbling block to ourselves, depending on what we let ourselves do and what we don't let ourselves do. So verses 8 and 9, since it's been a while... If your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame rather than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. Now, what I want us to focus on here is that Jesus is basically saying this, sin, eradicate it. Sin, do whatever it takes to get it out of your life. Sin, you don't need it, you don't want it, and you get serious about it. He's not telling you to literally cut off your hand or your foot. We'll talk about that. Now, we have talked about causing others to stumble. Now Jesus is, uh, I think, turning his focus on his uh, comments to the individual. And some of those are going to include Christians. So what about causing yourself to stumble? What do you do with sin in your own life? How do you handle it? Well, that's what he's talking about. 
eradicate it. If it's your hand or your foot that causes you to stumble, then you'd be better off without a hand or a foot. Here, Jesus has in view the radical, or if you will, the fundamental nature of sin removal for the individual. I want to say that again so you can use that as a guide to hear what else I'm going to say. Jesus has the view, uh, the radical view, of the nature of sin removal for the individual. We need to be radical about moving sin, removing it. These two verses answer this question. What is my attitude to be and my course of action when dealing with sin in my own life? Now, causing others to stumble is a sin, so i got to deal with that. Don't do that anymore. And causing myself to sin. Have you ever set a stumbling block in your own path? Been somewhere you shouldn't have been, now you're tempted. Looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, now you're tempted. Uh, You're setting a stumbling block in your own life. How do I deal with that? Well, the seemingly radical nature of Jesus' answer is in direct proportion to the consequence that will befall people who don't take care of their sin. I'm sorry, I have to read that again. The seemingly radical nature of Jesus' answer, because his answer is radical, is in direct proportion to the consequence that will befall people who don't take care of their sin. Jesus is saying, do you people understand that your sin, do you disciples, are you disciples listening to me? Your sin will cost you an eternity in hell. To the followers who are out there that are following the world, your, your sin, if you don't deal with it, will cause you to, to burn in hell. And that's, a, that's, the, that's the worst consequence that could ever be. That is the worst of the worst. And so Jesus brings out some, an idea to get you to understand it's, it's a radical thing you have to do to take care of your sin. The Bible, however, um, oh, I want to read that. Deuteronomy 14.1. Let's, let's do that. Deuteronomy 14.1. From the best of my information, 91% of our high school young people are cutting themselves. 98. What did I say? 98. I told that to a friend of mine who's a youth evangelist, and he said, no way. Uh, Hod Bolchus, he was here once. And he had a hundred kids, thank you, Jesus, uh, at a rally of his. He just thought, let's find out if Hubbard knows what he's talking about. So he asked him, with their heads down, eyes closed, how many of you are cutting? He called me, he said, you don't know what you're talking about. I did not have 98%, I had 100%. <laughs> okay, I was wrong. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible has this to say. What does is, what is God say in, in Leviticus 19? Not to cut yourself and not to tattoo your body. It's because you're marring the image of the Almighty God in your body. That's what you're doing. You're effacing the image of God. And if we want to get back to pre-fall creation order, then we don't, we don't mar the body of God purposely. And uh, so God says no tattooing in chapter 19 of Leviticus. And here he says, and now I'm back in Deuteronomy 14.1, You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your foreheads for the sake of the dead. What the pagans did in those days, they'd go to a funeral and they'd dance around, cry out to their gods, let this one live. And they would slash their wrists or cut themselves, let their blood fall on the dead person and ask their God to raise it with their blood. 
And God is saying, you don't, you don't cut yourself for the dead. You don't, you don't uh, do things that mar the image of God in you. We're trying to get back to the image as best we can, not further away from it. And so the Bible is against mutilating the body. That's what I want you to see. Now, um, if you're a, a sharp Bible stu student, you're going to say, but pastor, the Bible says there's a time when you cut somebody's hand off. That's true. It does. Cutting your hand because you stole something uh, is what's in view here. We also run across in Deuteronomy 25:12. if two men are fighting and a woman gets involved in a way she should not get involved, they're to cut her hand off. That's the punishment for that. And it's in the same passage that talks about the death penalty for your sin. Here we're talking about eradicating sin out of your life. And God is against mutilation. That's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, unless it's this punishment outlined in Deuteronomy 25.12. So cutting off your hand because you stole something, or cutting off your foot because you went somewhere you shouldn't have gone, uh, friends, uh, here's the truth about that. It will not guarantee that you'll stop stealing. It won't guarantee that you'll stop going to the places you shouldn't go. Now, in countries, in Arab countries, where they do cut your hand off if you get caught so many times stealing, or they do cut your feet off, believe it or not, there are people in the society that have no hands and no feet. And they're still trying to do things they shouldn't do. Is that what Jesus is saying? Can you solve your problem by cutting your hand off? No, you can't. Removing your foot will not keep you out of places you should not go. Uh, cutting off your hand is mutilation. Jesus never promotes that, except for this one case in Deuteronomy uh, where this woman does something she shouldn't do in chapter 25, 12. It's a penalty for what she did, as is the death penalty, which means taking of somebody's life. The real problem is in the heart, and that's where the battle takes place. I think what Jesus is putting here is the attitude I need to have against my sin and sinning against others and other sin. The attitude I need to have is I'm going to eradicate that. I'm going to get rid of it no matter what it costs, no matter what happens. I'm going to get rid of it. But I don't think he is asking you uh, to mutilate yourself. Uh, Dr. David Turner called this, uh, this verse a hypothetical, hyperbolic language that is designed to make a point. And the point is eradicate sin in your life. And uh, in case we're thinking we're a little holier than maybe we are, uh, there are people in this world that do lob off appendages out of guilt and of feeling dirty. God is not asking us to do that. And I've tried to talk with one of them to get them to stop doing that. And they don't, they don't see it. They said, God said to do it, so I'm going to do it. I don't think so. It's about getting sin out of your life. You can cut all your appendages off and still have sin. God is saying, get serious about it. And if you think, well, it would be okay for me... Uh, I have news for you. I think that, it, like I trusted Christ when I was eight years old. So I've had a lot of time to do things I shouldn't do. I wouldn't have any hands or feet left. And I don't think hardly any Christian would have any hands or feet left if this is what that meant. He's talking about eradicating sin. This is not teaching us to literally amputate our finger, our hand, or our foot to stop sinning. People who self-mutilate, and that's what they call it in uh, psychological circles, or NSSI, which stands for non-suicidal self-injury, and lots of people have those things and do that. Usually they do it because they believe they're bad and they're trying to eradicate sin. So it has a conversion reaction to it. I feel sinful, my hand did it, so I'll cut it off. 
and that's not healthy either. Uh, they, they think they deserve punishment or they are defeated in some way, and so they uh, take that pain to their body and cut something off. They're using mutilation, this cutting, to cover emotional pain. Now, most of the kids I mentioned to you are not cutting things off. They're just cutting in their arms or cutting in their hips or wherever somebody can't see it uh, for the release of endorphins so they can feel good because it gets to feeling good. God said, don't do that. I'm talking about cutting something off here because of emotional pain. And they are, in the world's eyes, usually people that have a borderline personality disorder or obsessive-compulsive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Usually those are the people where we find this NSSI or other emotional problems because it's not only there. Well, there are Christians who have taken this literally, and I'm going to say that is not what Jesus is saying to do. He is saying get rid of sin the best you can and get serious about it. Otherwise, none of us would have any hands or feet, and I couldn't even turn the pages on my Bible up here. Verse 9, dealing with sin must be intentional and forsaking it painful for some. But the pain of dealing with it is far less, even incomparable, to what happens if we don't deal with our sin, especially where our sin with God is concerned. What is in view here is that what, what it is, is what it is that keeps us from entering the kingdom of heaven. As a believer, we can not enter uh, by doing these things, uh, and we can enter without reward. An unbeliever won't even get to enter if they don't deal with their sin. And here the topic is, uh, again, the true believer, and it can be the unbeliever. The same thing is true, but the true believer is a person who deals with his or her sin. The unbeliever doesn't. The true believer deals with their sin, and, and Jesus knows that. It is so important to deal with our sin so we don't op open up a door for the enemy to take ground in us. The consequence of not doing so is to be cast into hell. You don't deal with your sin at all, you're going to end up in hell. Both verses teach this. One says the eternal fire, and the next one uh, literally says the Gehenna of fire. Failure to deal with sin means the little one is in danger of hell. So it's serious. I don't believe you can lose your salvation, so don't, don't, don't think what I'm not saying. <laughs> right? I'm, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying a believer can lose their sin, but they still need to deal with sin. All right, finally, and I really hope to hold you over about a half hour because you went to all the work to get here. You deserve more, right? I am kidding, but I'll, I'll try here. The third point, verse 10, is do not despise the lowly person because his or her angel has continual access to God. You ever thought about that? I caused somebody to sin or caused somebody to stumble, and guess who reports it to the Father? <laughs> An angel who is unbiased, who has a perfect vision of what happened and knowledge of what happened, and they're going to tell the Father what you did. I wonder how many times an angel is told on me. Do you wonder how many times they've told on you? <laughs> well, we are uh, not to despise. That means look down on these little ones. And we said last time, uh, the little ones up in verse 6 are, are the ones uh, who repent. Those are people that come into Christ. I think Jesus is still using that terminology, although he illustrated that with a, a little person last time. That would be if we decide to try and turn someone from pursuing a relationship with Jesus. That's the stumbling block. It is to not care about someone and their, their eternal life. 
Here it refers to the weakest person, the lowliest one, the very least among us, who in that culture had no legal rights at all, more or less just property. It also refers to the little, little child because they are included in being people that need Jesus. Remember verse 6 up above where death is better, a better option than causing a child, a little one, one who is repenting uh, to stumble. Man, how serious is Jesus about this issue? What is a good reason to not look down on the little ones, other people running to Christ? Well, it turns out the angel assigned to that person, or it could be angels, has a direct access to the Father. This is where we talk about things like uh, guardian angels, this text, and some others. I want to share those with you, a, a few of them. Acts twelve fifteen. I think that's in your uh, notes there. Acts 12, 15. Rhoda said, hey, Peter's outside the gate. And they said, oh, he can't be. And uh, they said, he's in prison. Rhoda comes and insists, no, no, uh, he is there. And they said to her in verse 15, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, it is his angel. That just shows that they had that belief uh, back there in Jesus' day. Hebrews 1.14 tells us what angels are, uh, are about and what they do and what God causes them to do. I'm talking about good angels, not demons. And it says in Hebrews 1.14, uh, by way of a rhetorical question, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Answer, yes. So angels attend you. They help you. I prayed real hard God would let the Chevy start at 12 below this morning. And uh, I don't know if an angel got in there and spun that engine for me, but the other day when it was four out, I barely got it started. Today it actually turned over quicker and better than when it was four degrees. I think God helped me. I wanted him to, I wanted to get here. And I think he helped me. Where, where would I get that help? Well, probably the angel that is sent to take care of me and to help me. Maybe, there's, maybe they tag team. Taking care of me would be a job, right? And you might need some relief once in a while. It says in Matthew 26, 53, Jesus, who just told Peter, put your sword away, or do you, not think, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus said, all I have to do is say the word, and there will be 72,000 angels here to protect me. You think God cares about you enough to send an angel, a spirit of God, from God, who serves God to help you? Sure he will. Sure he will. Now, you don't worship that angel. You don't bow down to him. You don't pray to him. They're a servant of God like you are, and they're just there to help, and that's what they'll do. Sometimes radical things need to be done about our sin. Maybe the world thinks it's radical and we don't, but radical things. We need to deal with our sin in, in a radical way. Step out and do something. So I've seen that at times when somebody checks herself into a rehab center instead of having to be made by the court to go. Or a couple goes and gets marriage counseling, even if it seems like it's embarrassing to the people around them and to their friends. Or a man exposes his pornography problem 
and gets help and gets freedom from it. Or a person pays back money they cheated people out of. Or a person stops buying alcohol for minors in the community. Or a father stops hindering his children from seeking Jesus. And the list could go on and on and on and on, depending on the person. Well, uh, some applications for us today. I think we've had some as we've gone along. I always like to think that. But number one, failure to deal with sin means a person is in danger of hell. You know, there are people that think they're Christians who don't care about their sin, who don't deal with their sin, who don't take it to account. And I have to wonder if they really are true believers. Secondly, we must determine to avoid looking down on others. Spiritually. Every, every unbeliever we meet needs Jesus. And we, we don't want to pick and choose who we tell and who we don't. They all need to hear the message. The, the down and outer, the homeless person, or the rich person. doesn't matter. Number three, don't promote sin for others and excise it from your own life. Don't promote others sinning and excise it from your own life and my own life. I'm speaking to myself too. And fourthly, and last, friends, God sends his angels to minister to you. Don't forget how much he cares about you and loves you. You take one step in his direction to make the right decision. And he will lend the power of heaven for you to keep down that path.